Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Our next guest ran J.P. Morgan's New York energy trading business in the 1990s, set up his own commodities fund, and now is investing in crypto assets. Daniel Masters joins us now, Chief Investment Officer of Global Advisors, also Chairman of CoinShares Group. He manages about $800 million of assets, including uh, crypto assets. Daniel, thank you so much for being with us. Um, in an interview last month, you said, for us, it is abundantly clear that we are in the midst of a true financial revolution. You're referring to cryptocurrencies. What makes you so confident about that? Yes, good uh, uh, Good morning, and um, thanks very much uh, for having me back. Um, the distributed ledger technology that's being pioneered by uh, in developments surrounding Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies is really the democratization of transactions. Uh, in the same way as when the internet appeared, uh, we saw um, the news and information traveling around without the necessity for big organizations as uh, centers for distribution of that information. So blockchains, Bitcoin, and other such crypto assets are democratizing the, uh, the transactional uh, interaction between individuals. That's at the core of what makes this a revolution. Can you tell us, what is, how do you describe CoinShares? What, what does CoinShares do for, for customers? CoinShares is a nascent digital investment bank. Uh, many of the things we do are an analog and parallel to what happens in the legacy financial services industry. So we provide uh, investment entry points uh, for people um, to come into crypto assets without having to own them directly. We take care of that hedging and replication. Uh, we provide services to people within the crypto community. And this is you know, at the peaks of the December prices approaching a trillion-dollar ecosystem, uh, we provide a treasury and asset and liability management type of services, hedging services, uh, and some advisory. Uh, we also deploy proprietary capital within that ecosystem, uh, funding these small companies uh, and participating in some of the initial coin offering type of activity that I'm sure you're aware of. Okay. The reason I want just to set that uh, in, in, in some context is, is because my next thought, it has to do with what's known as leakage, right? This mm -hmm. is the, the, le the financial, the, rather the fractional reserve banking system and the leverage that you have in that system. Mm -hmm. Is the use of cryptocurrencies, is this causing a leakage in that leverage? Well, that, that's a great question. And, uh, you know, I mean, I think what is clear is that there was a, a kind of a regulatory sandbox in which digital assets of all kinds existed um, all the way from back when we started in 2013, right through the third or fourth quarter of last year. You know, when, when an ecosystem is a billion or five billion or 10 billion, uh, it's almost experimental in, in the scope uh, of the main financial system. But, you know, once you start rapidly approaching a trillion and with the, you know, associated media hype around it, uh, this all of a sudden became something that regulators, banks, uh, authorities of various kinds, uh, central banks, governments, uh, decided that it could, it could no longer be ignored. 
So, you know, I don't think there's any concern from that, that community at the moment that there's leakage, as you put it. Uh, but I think they're beginning to realize that it, there is potential for that um, in the future. Um, I've never thought that it would be uh, a sort of a fight to the death between, you know, crypto and, 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 and the, you know, the dollar or the pound or the legacy financial system. And to me, it's always been a question of what portion uh, of the total financial ecosystem uh, uh, accrues to cryptocurrencies. Yeah. And I think, you know, even if it's only 5% at the end of the day, uh, that market will then still be much bigger than it is right now. Danny, how much of the $800 million that you manage, uh, how much is in crypto assets? All of it. All of it. Okay. So how do you go about uh, determining how to invest that money? I mean, did you just sort of invest in yeah. Bitcoin or, or sort of? Oh, no. We do a range of things. So first of all, the, the largest bulk of our assets are from a, one of our uh, companies we own called XBT Provider. And XBT Provider provides Bitcoin and Ethereum certificates that track the price of those assets on NASDAQ, uh, NASDAQ OMX in Stockholm. That is by far our, our largest um, product pool. And let's call that a passive strategy. Then we have active strategies, um, and the active strategies are essentially funds of various kinds. Um, we currently have two, I uh, will soon to be four. And, um, you know, I can describe them uh, generically as multi-currency, multi-strategy yeah. uh, in one bucket and index-based uh, in another bucket. So in, the, in, the, in the, you know, the interesting part is the active funds, the multi-strat, multi-coin funds, and there we'll do anything from protocol coins, so the mainstream Bitcoin, Ethereum, Zcash, Monero, uh, uh, you name it, down to, you know, small uh, boutique niche type of initial coin offerings and everything in the middle. So how do you just in, in just real quick, how do you prevent fraud? Uh, well, we have a very, very, um, uh, a very, very uh, detailed screening system. Um, the there are pros and cons to digital finance, and you know one of the cons is chaos. Um, one of the pros is in that chaos, uh, there is some rich information. It's almost as though you know the concept of stock analysts. Stocks, analyzing stocks has gone back to where it was before we had perfect information. So we have a multi-stage screening process. I would say of the small, uh, you know, initial coin offering type of things we get uh, coming across our desk, fewer than three percent make it through that filter. Uh, so there is a process to it, and uh, and that's what we have to um, go through in order to get get comfortable. I want to thank you very much for joining us. Daniel Masters, Chief Investment Officer for Global Advisors. He is also the chairman of CoinShares Group. Global Advisors owns a 75% interest in CoinShares. I want to bring in Ira Jersey, interest rate strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, Ira, I wonder if you could comment on uh, Richard Clarida, the uh, number two pick for the Federal Reserve. He is um, a respected uh, economist, a Columbia University professor, and uh, also a lot of experience in the world of markets, asset manager at PIMCO. Um, I wonder if you could tell us, what are your thoughts about uh, Mr. Clarida, and, and what do you think he's going to bring to the Federal Reserve? 
Yeah, so I think Mr. Claret is a, a mainstream pick. Uh, just like, quite frankly, like Jay Powell was, and even even Governor Quarles, who's um, right in front of the uh, House Financial Services Committee as as we speak. Um, you know, the, Donald Trump has has not gone outside the box. So he's done a lot of other things that are outside the box with who he picked for some cabinet posts and the like. But when it comes to the Fed, um, uh, the Fed governors, he's really been uh, more or less mainstream. I mean, certainly, you know, he had certain litmus tests. That things like you know people who are for uh, modesty regulation and even quarrels today in his prepared remarks is, is saying that he uh, um, that he favors most of the the, the basis of, of the post crisis uh, financial regulations but that he wants to you know scale scale some of them back and I, I think most people would see that that that's probably not a bad thing for the economy or uh, or markets in general and Richard Clarida is just within that same kind of mold so Ira this is Fed speak week. There are about 400,000 speeches by different Fed officials this week, more or less, roughly. Um, One of them uh, caught my attention, John Williams, uh, speaking in Madrid uh, just a bit ago, uh, addressing the flattening U.S. yield curve, saying so far it's normal. Uh, That said, he said if the yield curve were to invert, they would take it seriously and it would be a sign of a recession. What do you make of that, given the fact that the gap between 10 and two-year yields right now is at its narrowest since 2007 and steadily narrowing as short-term rates rise? Yeah, and we think we'll continue to narrow further. We actually think another uh, 15 basis points or so uh, in the twos, tens uh, treasury curve uh, for the for the course of the year. Um, so, uh, you know, that we, we, we don't have a lot of experience with this. You know, we have to t- take into account that we've only had, uh, you know, a limited number of recessions over the past 50 years. And and in and more than half of them, we certainly saw when yield curves got to uh, got to zero or, or inverted, that at some point in the future, you had uh, you had a recession. But but those lags tend to take a very long time. So I don't think it's a foregone conclusion. I think what it what it tends to happen is the yield curve gets to flat, but the Fed continues to hike after that. And when they continue to hike after that, they basically um, they basically clamp down too far on financial conditions, interest rates, the whole entire yield curve goes up too far, and that's when you end up getting recession. Now, can they can they stop that this time? They they probably can. And one of the ways that they can do that is as you approach that zero, stop hiking, right? Just just let the market be for a while, see if the yield curve starts to steepen a little bit, which implies that you're going to have fast faster inflation in the future and better growth in the future, as opposed to, you know, continuing to hike to kind of clamp down on on that growth and, and inflation. So um, so you have to be, you know, the Fed has to be very careful. And I think now that we've had kind of these three distinct periods over the last 30 years or so where that's all happened, maybe they've they, they've learned their lesson. And, you know, Richard Clarida is one of those people who I think understands this as an economic historian, as a monetary policy person. It's good to have him in that vice chair seat because he brings that historical perspective that maybe a few other folks on the uh, Board of Governors doesn't, doesn't have. Ira, uh, to follow up on, on uh, Lisa's comment about the 400,000 speeches that we're going <laughs> to have to digest, uh, you can add to that tweets from the President of the United States having to do with currencies and specifically the U.S. dollar. Uh, is that having any effect on uh, on the value of the U.S. dollar? I was noting, for example, stronger, at least against the Canadian dollar, and uh, just a little bit move uh, lower against the euro today. Yeah, not not huge moves in in the euro from from the tweets. I, I think you know the market at, at some level is. Um, uh, 
I, I don't want to say getting numb to tweets, but uh, you, you know they they know that that uh, I think the president only can control markets so much, and and in, it's things like uh, fiscal policy that he'll wind up uh, impacting significantly more, or when he does things in, in trade policy and the like that he can control directly. Um, you, you know, tweets about you know interest rates and things like that. Given who he's uh, he's appointed, probably aren't going to have a, a, a huge effect, and and you haven't seen huge moves in in the yen, for example, or, uh, or or the euro today. It's been very modest. Um, yeah, after uh, after some of those tweets. Ira Jersey, thank you so much for being with us. Ira Jersey, Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. It has over $24 billion in assets. It's the second largest credit union in the United States, PenFed. And our uh, and the chief executive and the president joins us now. This is the Pentagon Federal Credit Union. James Skank, thanks very much for being with us, uh, based in Alexandria, Virginia. Mr. Skank, maybe just tell us a, a little bit about PenFed and what you're doing with a new program entitled the Veteran Entrepreneur Investment Program. Great. Yeah, you know, PenFed's been serving our community for over 83 years, and we're, as a credit union, founded on the principle of people helping people. And as a defense credit union, we think it's very important to continue to create jobs across America. And each year, over 200,000 veterans leave the service, and about a quarter of them plan to start their own business. So PenFed, uh, several years ago, has created a foundation in which we pay 100% of the foundation operating costs. So all the money the foundation raises goes back to support our programs. The one we're very excited about announcing is a program in which donors can donate to the PenFed Foundation and and we're going to invest in startup companies. And so this is going to be a gift that keeps on giving because if we can invest in the right startups, help these veterans that bring some incredible leadership and technical skills, give them capital and give them a, a network to succeed, that money will come back to the foundation, allow us to continue to create jobs and invest in more startup companies. So we're pretty excited about this new initiative through the PenFed Foundation. Just to clarify, these are not loans, they are gifts. Correct. Correct. Well, actually, it, it'll be these will be loans. This will be investments in. So, in other words, seed capital. Donate correctly. Seed capital. Okay. So they'll get. So potentially, you'll get the money back with dividends, uh, but you're providing it ostensibly at a lower rate. That's correct. And bringing an incredible network. So PenFed has over 1,700 business partners. We have relations across all 50 states. We think if we can identify the right veterans, and what do veterans need? What do all entrepreneurs need? They need capital, and they need a powerful network. We think bringing these things together can help really create jobs across America. James, I want to talk just generally about the idea of a credit union today at a time when credit availability is uh, pretty pretty rampant. I mean, you can get a loan uh, pretty easily. Why is a credit union better, especially when there's a certain sort of uh, advantage to having a scale and a bank beside you and and other sorts of advantages that, say, uh, Bank of America and uh, Wells Fargo might have? 
It's uh, about corporate structure. Nothing wrong with the banking industry, but it's a different structure. A bank CEO's primary purpose is to return value to the shareholder. So they want to pay their depositors the least, charge their commercial loan customers the most to increase their spread margin, provide return to their shareholders. A credit union is a whole different corporate structure. The whole reason a credit union exists is to serve a specific field of membership and to provide the value back to the consumer. So as a credit union CEO, my job is to pay the absolute highest rates on the Deposits. For example, 207 on a one-year CD right now, market leader. And the lowest rates on our loans to our member owners run at the lowest spread margin possible to give the value back to our owners, which is the member. I don't have shareholders. I have the members. So by giving them a lower loan rate or a higher dividend rate by structure is a better value for the consumer. But at the same time, as the CEO of a large financial institution, as Pim mentioned, $24 billion, I have to run extremely operationally efficient. The one thing that surprises me here in America is that more banks don't want to convert to become a credit union to align with the structure for the consumer who they're trying to help. Talk a little bit about the members that may try to do business with you in Puerto Rico and what you're doing there. Yes, we've been in Puerto Rico for over a decade. Uh, we merged with the Fort Buchanan Federal Credit Union about a decade ago. At the time, we had just under 18,000 members. Today, we're one of the largest financial institutions in Puerto Rico with 200,000 members. They've come to PenFed for trust and commitment. We've been there with them through hard times. I've been there twice this year, right after the uh, hurricane, and I've been back in early March. I brought Gary Sinise back to do a free concert. We opened up the military base Fort Buchanan to the San Juan community and the greater island to, one, show that we appreciate the hardship and the struggle they've been through, but at the same time to continue to raise awareness. There's Americans in Puerto Rico that need our help, just like we helped the victims of the storms in Texas, Florida, New Jersey. These are fellow Americans that continue to need the leadership of the private sector and the public sector to help close gaps, to bring life back to stability and normal. There's still over 80,000 individuals without power six months into it. Can you imagine if a loved one that you knew here in the States, you know, in New York or New Jersey or Connecticut or here in Virginia, went a week without power? Imagine going six months without power and fresh water in your home. It's, It's Americans need our help. You know, James, I'm struck by the idea that yeah, PenFed is trying to serve uh, a specific group of clients. It's a nonprofit. It's trying to be run by the people. I'm trying to square that with making sure that you're you know, fiscally responsible and catering to clients at a time when defaults are starting to tick up. Uh, how, how do you sort of manage that? And what do you see as far as the consumer credit landscape goes, uh, given the fact that we are seeing delinquencies and defaults increase? Uh, we still see amazing demand for our business. The um, the administration's tax cuts have been very bullish. Uh, I think we have historically low unemployment right now. We're seeing demand for consumer loans, automobiles, our market-leading credit card products, and home mortgages above the norm. We've grown over 40,000 new members the first quarter of 2018 alone. So we're seeing great demand for consumer products. But like all CEOs within the financial services sector, we have to make good loans. We need to make full-doc loans. We need to make sure we know who the consumer is. So we're seeing really strong demand for our products and services. We had a record year in 2017. We grew $1.7 billion. We've grown $500 million in assets the first quarter. So the current administration policies, low unemployment, the still historically low interest rate cycle, we're seeing great demand for consumer lending.
Even though we're late in the cycle, as you would think, we still think there's a few years uh, left to run uh, because of the strong demand and with these uh, recent tax cuts. Last year, you opened something called the Availability Command Center. Tell us what it is and why you decided that this was worth your time, energy, and money. Definitely worth our time, energy, and money because we're an online firm. PenFed by design does 95% of our business remotely. Phones, mobile, web. 95% of our transactions are done remotely. We do 100 million transactions a month. Our availability command center ensures our systems are up, running 24 hours a day, seven days a week to do real-time processing, not batch processing, real-time processing anywhere in the world for our customers, our consumers, what we call PenFed members. With that said, we could also, from a forensic perspective, we can track back any one of the 100 million transactions, look for fraud trends, look for cyber hack trends. We have really good visibility on everything flowing into and out of our network real time. So in financial services, like in all industries today, uh, making the investment in information technology and infrastructure is worth every penny. James Gink, thank you so much for joining us. James Gink, President and Chief Executive Officer of Pentagon Federal Credit Union, known as PenFed, which is based in Alexandria, Virginia, talking about a new program uh, for veterans who are opening new businesses as well as uh, credit unions. China and the automobile industry, it is lifting a nearly 20-year restriction on foreign ownership of local, that is Chinese, operations. Here to tell us more, Kevin Tynan, Senior Autos Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. And you can follow Kevin on Twitter at KevTynan10. And all right, KevTynan10, why is China doing this? Well, I think they, there's a little bit of uh, uh, of the feeling that they want to penetrate some markets outside of their own. Uh, you know, it's been very difficult to get uh, Chinese manufacturers established uh, in Europe or in the U.S. Uh, and the feeling is that if they open up a little bit more, uh, we'll reciprocate and, and get some of their brands in here. So let's talk about exactly what China was doing. They basically are saying that foreign automakers can own more than 50 percent of local ventures. This would remove a two decade restriction uh, that had prevented some companies, including Tesla, from going to China. Is Tesla the biggest potential beneficiary of this or can you point to another company that uh, might see a, a bigger boon from this? Well, I, I think from where we are now, Lisa, that would be the idea that Tesla probably is the biggest beneficiary, right? All the other automakers have established partnerships uh, that probably don't expire for 10 years at a minimum. VW and FAW are probably double that, 25 years. Um, you know, and and... and and those are going to those are going to remain in place. So Tesla sort of coming in as a new entrant into the market probably can establish something uh, in, in these terms a little bit more beneficial. But I'm just not sure that you really want to be that involved in the Chinese market without a local partner. I think that would be very difficult to do as well. So the idea that that Tesla walks in and can be independent uh, in that marketplace and just gain huge amount of market share, I, right. I think is unrealistic. Well, Kevin, can you just give us a sense of what the objection to this 50-50 type of ownership structure is? 
Uh, well, that it's a huge market and there's a lot more money to be made, and you're basically sharing it with your with your venture partners. I've always said, you know, and and we hear all the time about you know the largest automotive market in the world. But when you look back at at you know General Motors' income statement, um, you know the the revenue contribution that is brought back into the income statement is just it's it's pennies on the dollar compared to what they generate here in in North America. So it's really a volume story there. It always has been a volume story there, but it's not really a profit story or it, it hasn't been as large a profit story and this sort of opens it up where you can bring back a lot more of those earnings than you had been able to previously. Kevin, is this going to relate in any way to Chinese automobile companies looking to get into the US market? I would I would think so. I think there's other hurdles there as well in terms of um, regulation, safety, compliance kind of things. Um, but but I would I would tend to think that that would be the goal here. Um, when you look at the size of the Chinese market, and then the size of Europe or or even North America, you have to wonder what you know that that Chinese market continues to grow year after year after year. Um, what the interest would be, and I don't think that the Chinese government would really be doing something uh, detrimental to their own companies at the expense of being beneficial for for their uh, Western partners, just for the sake of letting them make more money. Kevin, how much of this comes in response to President Trump? Uh, some of it, for sure, um, I, but it's been it's been talked about for probably five years. Uh, so this this predates him for sure. Maybe the the uh, rhetoric intensifies uh, since he's been in place. But this is not a new concept or or something that's been that's been tried to push forward. Uh, it's at least five years. Kevin, you're at the uh, you're you're a, a consumer electronics show. Yeah, well, I was there. Yep. Yeah. What did you find there that uh, that applies to the automobile industry? Is it really all about trying to automate everything that goes on in the cabin? It is. But what uh, I thought, and I was there with uh, Michael Dean, our um, European analyst, and I, what really surprised me is is that there is a lot of that, but how far away we really are. Um, you know, this idea that we're going to be level five, full self-driving anytime soon, um, especially for the consumer, for your, you know, your everyday passenger vehicle is, I think, much farther away than people realize. Kevin Tynan, thank you so much for being with us. Kevin Tynan, Senior Autos Analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, and he was talking about the move of China to open up its market to, uh, to the U.S. and to car makers in general around the world other than in China. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.